the common thread for me that runs through everybody is is that sense of purpose about wanting to work in an industry where what I do every day matters in the bigger picture. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest today is an expert in the most important and most expensive resource in transport. It's not the buses or the trains, it's the people. As founding director of Intuitive Recruitment, Nina Lockwood has been recruiting to roles in transport for over a decade. She's met hundreds, maybe thousands, of the transport industry's key people. And so she understands what makes them, and therefore this industry, tick. She's also found time to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Nina, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you so much, Thomas. What a great introduction. Thank you. Now, you've been in transport, I said, for a decade. Did you, did you seek transport out, or did you just fall into it somehow? Um, I sought it out to an extent. I think is the truthful answer there. I had been, having come from a career in in banking and change management consultancy, I wanted to, I'd kind of then moved into executive search um, around about 20 years ago. We'll not go any further into specific numbers because um, I'm feeling my age as it is at the moment. <laughs> um, and and I'd, I'd gone into executive search. I knew that I wanted to uh, set up my own business and uh, and do executive search in my own way, which was quite different to some of the other um, recruitment companies out there. And I did a very, very, it's fair to say, quick and dirty piece of research in terms of different industry sectors. I knew I didn't want to focus on financial services because I'd been there and done that. I'd worked in, in facilities management, in utilities, in telecoms. So I wanted a new sector and I had a look and I kind of came to, um, to transport and construction, uh, neither of which I'd worked in before, but kind of literally did some, I'm, I'm not an analyst in by any any um, means at all but what my gut was telling me or what my intuition was telling me was that transport as an industry well first of all what we know is is it will always be there people will always need to get from A to B in whatever shape or form that is but from what I could tell from the outside perspective there was a degree of change and transformation that needed to happen in order to bring the transport industry um, up to a par with other other industries that I'd worked in. And it's quite a brave step that to choose an industry you've deliberately never worked in. Most people, if they're setting up a new career, doing something they've never done before, they'd stick to the place they've done it before. Whereas you were doing a new thing in a new place. That's quite brave. Yeah, yeah. it was brave or daft, I suppose, one or the other. <laughs> but um, do you know, when I, when I talk about it now and I look back on it, um, it does it does seem a bit kind of like well why would you do that because i literally i had a blank piece of paper um i had been on a train and my great grandfather had been a station master at birkenhead um and landed no junction but apart from that i had no knowledge of of the transport industry other than a, a user um but what what i felt and what has proved to be true is that that change and transformation needed to happen 
And one of the reasons for that was that um, the previous industries I'd worked in had cottoned on 20 years earlier that actually the customer is where it's at. So what, what I felt in the rail industry specifically was that it was very similar to where we'd been in banking 20 years before, where we were changing a culture. There was a massive change in the way that we were working. What I felt I could see in rail particularly was that if if we put everybody in a in a big room who worked in the rail industry and we said everyone here who joined the industry to serve a customer put your hand up I'm not sure we would have seen an enormous show of hands at that point which we're talking about eight and a half years ago I think that we had people who were exceptionally talented at what they do, but it was it was a lot of it was about the trains, it was about the engineering, it was about the rolling stock, it was it was kind of about the heavy industry side of it, but not necessarily about the passengers themselves. And looking at various other different industry sectors, it made sense to me that, well, I think that's gonna have to change. I think in order to to kind of bring us up to a par with what customers expect, passengers expect, we're going to need some change in this industry. Where you need that level of change, you need new leadership. And that's where I come in. I certainly recognise that characterisation of the rail industry. Um, As someone who was working in it at the time you joined, I had fantastic colleagues in Chiltern Railways. And I think we were one of the more customer-focused train operators but there were still people who definitely were cared an awful lot more about the vehicle than the people that were traveling on the vehicle and i've met people in other mm-hmm. train companies who were i think nowhere near where we would got, had got to in Jilton railways i have to confess i've had a number of conversations with rail colleagues over the last year and a number of them have said how fantastic it is they didn't quite put it in these words but more or less how fantastic it is there's no customers and they can just run the trains properly um <laughs> absolutely that's a slight that's a slight exaggeration but not not much of an exaggeration of some conversations to be honest with you um do you feel like eight and a half years on that that journey has progressed as far as you wanted to push it oh golly that's a good question thomas i think we have seen um we have definitely seen a shift I mean, for example, all of the train operating companies now have a customer director. So whether that's customer experience or customer services director, some of them are called slightly different title. But on each of the executive teams within the operating companies, there is somebody responsible for being the voice of the customer. And quite often that role is combined with the commercial director role, which again kind of, um, I think, shows a a shift in understanding that if you get the customer bit right, then the commercial bit will also be right because people will want to travel with you more and recommend you to other people. Um, And so the revenue will sort itself out from that perspective, the revenue growth, which which we're all looking forward to when we're ultimately allowed to do it again. The tell me a bit about what you actually do. I says I've had a number of these conversations on these podcasts with people, and I suspect they do a job. You know, I was talking to Lord Adonis the other day, and I asked him the same thing. As a cabinet minister, you turn your computer on because everyone turns your computer on. That's the first thing everyone does, whatever whatever job they do. But then it changes. What do you, what what does your typical day look like? Um, 
I think that the the headline for each and every day um, for me is that it's it's all about creating meaningful connections. That's what we do as an organisation. And um, a typical day involves talking to lots of people. So we will be talking to candidates. So we're building relationships with our existing candidate network. So we're keeping in touch with people that um, are, we know have got the skills and experience that our clients are going to need as we head into what the future is going to look like. And we're also having conversations with our clients to, um, to make sure that we understand where they're up to with their business plan. What are they being charged with delivering? What are their challenges and their issues and what's on the list of priorities? So this is really important. Our conversations with client organisations are not about me picking the phone up and saying, hi, Thomas, have you got any jobs? That's not what we do. We are having a conversation, a business conversation about what's going on, what's going on in your world, in your business, in your department. And so at any one time, if we then get a phone call, email from a client that says we need a whatever, operations director, we already know what's going on in that organisation. We know what the plans are. We know what the strategy is. We know what the culture is, which is really important. So these conversations are gold dust to me, these kind of keep in touch conversations, which enable us to really understand our candidates and really understand the client organisations. And then there's also a third category, which we refer to as, as our people of interest. Um, and these are the you know, people of influence, I guess, in the industry who are involved with the big stuff that's going on. Um, and they might not be clients and they might not be candidates, but they are people that we maintain a relationship with because a key differentiator for Intuitive is that we really understand the industry. We have a different level of knowledge uh, in terms of what's going on, um, what the key issues are industry-wide, uh, who's doing what to whom and why, and all of that stuff. Um, so it's lots of, a, a typical day is lots of chatting, Thomas, which is why it's a perfect job for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> given that, you know, you've been talking to everyone about everything. So if there's one person who can tell us exactly, who's got their finger on the pulse and tell us exactly what the industry's thinking right now, it's you. So um, what's the industry <laughs> thinking right now? I think that it's fair to say that there is a high level of, um, it's probably quite a strong word, Thomas, but a high level of confusion at the moment. Um, I think that we would like some certainty, which might be brought about by the Williams White Paper, although a number of people are now saying, let's not, Please don't wait for that, because ultimately it's going to be the same people running the railway after the publication of that as it is now. Um, but I think that would give us some certainty. We don't know what's in it. Or obviously, if you're very, very, very important, you already know what's in it. But generally speaking, the industry is waiting for that. I think that would give us some certainty. Um, we've got conversations obviously going on with the department around termination fee agreements. 
all of the operating companies had to submit their business plans to the department by the middle of February. Um, I think they will form the basis of the mini bids that will happen for the direct awards. But until they get the feedback on the business plans, they can't feed that into the direct awards submission. So it's all a bit, there's lots of dependencies going on. And I think, to be honest, for the next 18 months to two years, there will always be a level of uncertainty happening. Um, And I think that feeds its way through from the management all the way through to the front line, where people are are concerned about their jobs. What will happen? What's the railway going to look like in the future? Celia, that makes the cultural change piece you described as your mission when you came into the industry a bit harder to achieve. If everyone's focused inwards on their own jobs, on the future structure of the industry, on what government's going to decide for us, it makes it harder for people to focus on the customer. Mm. I think it does. Um, but I guess the, the overlay there, which is important to remember, is that the, the people who work in this industry are exceptionally passionate about what they do. So it's about, I think, for so many people, whether they chose to come into the transport industry or whether they fell into it, which, you know, a number of people I've spoken to, um, that, that's been the case. They recognise that what we do in the in this in the transport industry is to is, is a there's a purpose to it. There is a sense of purpose. There is a we have a part to play in society in getting people where they need to go. So yes, I think there's some introspection happening about what what's happening to me and what will my position be. But I think that's balanced off with how can we make this industry fit for purpose as we move towards the whatever the new normal is going to look like? It's been one of the really shocking things for me. I and mean, I'm one of those people who joined this industry because I love the fact that we are at the centre of everything. You know, transport is what enables people to meet their families. It's what enables people to get jobs. It's what enables business deals to happen. Yeah, the one thing that ties the country together in my mind has always been transport. And so it's been a bit of a shock the last year to discover that, oh, the world can carry on without us. It never would have occurred to me that transport would effectively stop. And in the case of the business I lead, we literally stopped. And in the case of um, the, the the publicly subsidised transport industry, it carried on running, but the people didn't. And yet people have carried on without us. It's a, it's, and it feels like that must have been not just a shock to me, but a shock to an awful lot of people who grew up with a set of assumptions that have suddenly been challenged. Yeah, absolutely. And as we were saying before we, we came onto the podcast, you know, I'd, I've, I've written quite a few risk registers as I've gone through my career in various different roles, but global pandemic was never on any of them. So this was something which, you know, we it, it was just, it hadn't been thought about, it hadn't been forecast. And I think, yes, a lot of people have stayed away and that's because that's what they were told to do. There was a very clear instruction, um, obviously, from the outset, from the government, avoid public transport. I think what we have seen is that the people who had to use it, so the key workers, for example, um, have continued to be able to rely on it, have felt comfortable and confident relying on it and there's been some amazing engagement happening with um, train operating companies who have flexed their service who have literally decided what their timetable should look like based on the shift patterns of the hospitals that are on their route and that it makes me incredibly proud to be part of an industry that has supported the UK 
in dealing with this pandemic. And yes, not to the volumes of passengers that we were doing before. But I think if we look at the importance of the passengers that we have been transporting, then then that kind of takes takes the value back up up, up the way again. Yeah, that makes sense. It, okay, people have used it less, but actually, it's one of the only things that the government felt they had to pay to keep running. You know, they didn't pay to keep the pubs open; um, they paid to keep the trains running. So we talked yeah, earlier about yeah. what people are currently thinking, but who who are the people doing the thinking? Um, is there a there won't be one transport type, but I bet you you used to work in banking. If you were asked, based on all your experience, to draw a, a pen portrait of the archetypal banker. Uh, you'd probably be able to do that. And I suspect there's certain certain types of people you see over and again in the world of transport as well. Yeah, that's interesting, Thomas, because I think that, yes, certainly um, 30-something years ago when I started my career in banking, there was definitely a type. So, you know, you would see a person um, who would be, dressed in a certain way, who would look a certain way, who would have been educated in a certain way, and you would know without even asking them that they would be on the management development programme rather than coming into, um, you know, to be a cashier forevermore, you know. So, so yes, I think 30-odd years ago there was a stereotypical uh, bank person, bank manager, shall we say, Um and yes, I think historically there would have been a, a stereotypical transport person. Um, but when you when you invited me to take part in the the podcast, um, and you asked me about this, you know, this this transport type, I've taken the opportunity to to ask a few people that I've been speaking to over the last few days, and a really interesting conversation this morning um, with a director from one of the operating companies and and he said to me you know when I look around the table if we're having a or the virtual table at the moment but when we're having an exec team meeting senior leadership team meeting I look around and actually no two people are the same in relation to their character their personality their way of thinking they've got very diverse ways of thinking a counter to that is that they might look quite similar, although that particular operating company is doing very, very well on the gender balance in the in the exec team. This that's that's kind of where the diversity ends, I think, which is quite similar to to a lot of the industry. Um, is that we we're kind of getting there in some areas of diversity and, and others not really making good enough progress at all. So is there a transport type? I think increasingly, no. I think that we, the, the common thread for me that runs through everybody is, is that sense of purpose about wanting to work in an industry where what I do every day matters in the bigger picture. And that creates a passion. It creates something which says, I, I really I know I'm making a difference. What I do matters, and therefore I'm I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. There's a huge amount of talent in this industry. A lot of it is hiding, um, and you kind of you know you feel sometimes that you've got to have a good rummage in order to find people. Um, but that's what we do, and that's what we love doing is is kind of 
unearthing people that are, are maybe not on the radar or maybe not you know promoting themselves widely but there's some amazing stuff going on so a few weeks ago i spoke to rory sutherland um the behavioral science expert on the free reading podcast and he said that one of the issues with transport is that it is just too male and he said that men and women think differently and men obsess around small details and struggle to see the bigger picture um i'm not saying whether or not that's true or not but certainly what is true is I, I I mean I haven't been in a rail industry meeting for five years, obviously. Um, but when I was, I remember especially at ATOC, where I'd be a representative of my train company and I'd be a white male who'd be sent by Chilton Railways or by the Areva Group, um, and I'd be in a room almost exclusively with other white males. Um, and in a number of meetings, a number of forums I was on, it was literally, you know, 20 white men around a very big table. And that must affect the way that we view things. There is, there's always a danger, isn't there, where you do get, um, uh, and yes, there there are certainly a lot of white men of, of a certain age working in this industry. And what happens quite naturally is that you get group think because everybody does tend to think in the same way when they come from similar backgrounds and they've got similar experiences. That is changing Absolutely, it is. Just even in the the eight and a half years that I've been in the industry, it's definitely changing, and there are more um, there are more women coming through the ranks. So you are less likely to find yourself in a room where there are twenty men and that's it. But it still absolutely does happen, and that room of twenty people. Um, will still be the vast majority will be white men. So we have made some progress, but nowhere near enough and not fast enough. Why do you think that is? Because you mentioned that the, the key thing that draws everyone in transport together, which is something I can really empathise and feel, is this sense of purpose. And that does not feel like it should be a motivation that's exclu- exclusively male, putting mm. it mildly. Mm. So why does transport have this huge gender bias what causes it in your view in my view it's it's history it's the fact that the rail industry was um historically about heavy engineering if we look you know you just have to look at some of the archive photographs of you know when the tube was being built or you've got all the guys you know in their in their jeans and the hard hat no shirt on digging tunnels out you know you weren't going to get women doing those roles and and the the male and the female um responsibilities if you like going back a hundred plus years were very different to what they are now obviously so we're dealing with social history and we are an industry which has traditionally been male dominated that has started to change but the pace of change isn't fast enough so we are seeing more women coming through we are still not seeing enough people um, from ethnic minorities coming through that's a whole different strand of diversity another area that has changed in the last eight and a half years um, certainly from my perspective is that eight years ago if I was taking a brief for a senior role in the industry I would ask the client And does this person need rail industry experience? Yes, absolutely must have 
transport experience. Now we're at a stage where clients are actually saying, just offering up before I've even asked the question, and yes, we're interested to see people from outside sector. So diversity of thinking and an acceptance that we can look to other industries to help us with things that we could be doing better. So retail is an obvious one there. Uh, Travel and tourism is another one. You know, taking people from the leisure industry, the hotel industry, um, and bringing them into rail because they have a different way of looking at, at the world. One of my, I have no idea what's in the Williams Review, obviously, um, but like, like everyone, I'm guessing. Um, so let's have fun guessing for a while. <laughs> my, one of my slight niggles, one of my slight worries is this sense of a guiding mind and the sense that that might be a, a rebadged, reinvigorated network rail. And network rail are unbelievably good at what they do. We have the safest railway in Europe um, and it's incredible. But equally, an organisation that takes its foundational purpose around engineering and safety strikes me as the worst possible organization to provide the guiding mind for the people whose job it is to serve customers. Um, do you have a worry that's, that out of this confusion we talked about earlier, we might end up going backwards on some of the, the cultural purpose of the industry and without realizing it accidentally step backwards in terms of who we're bringing into it as a result? Um, do you know what? If I had a concern, then the fact that if we take Network Rail as the example there, the fact that we've got Lorraine Martins in the um, in the director position looking at diversity and inclusion and equality makes me confident that we won't go backwards. Um, Lorraine is exceptionally good at what she does and that Network Rail have a, um, a five-year strategy in place in terms of, so it's called the Everyone Matters campaign. They are looking at the makeup of the business in terms of every single layer, uh, their graduate intake, who are they bringing into the business, who are they promoting into roles. There is a huge amount of work being done um, by Lorraine and her team to make sure that Network Rail looks like its customer base and starts to represent. So so yes, I can understand why there would be a concern, but the fact that that Lorraine's at the helm and she has got the absolute full 100% support from Andrew Haynes and, and Sir Peter Hendy makes me feel confident that we are we will move in the right direction with Network Rail. So we're starting to we're starting to run out of time, but just tell me quickly, who are some of the most exciting people you've recruited for? What were some of the what are the ones you look back on and say, yeah, fantastic. I'm, oh my goodness. Got that one right, made that happen. Thomas, that's a really difficult question. You're kind of asking me to choose my favorite child there. That's a bit that's a bit <laughs> unfair. Um I think that there there are some organizations in this industry who are doing um, some different things in terms of their uh, the way they recruit. Um, there's lots of stuff happening and, and ultimately there are changes that everybody can make in relation to um, moving this agenda forward more quickly. Um, GTR, for example, have um, more than doubled the number of applications for uh, from females for train driver positions. Um, they have they've done an amazing recruitment advertising campaign where they have uh, not just gone for the usual suspects in terms of where you would advertise. They've really looked at where where can we put ourselves 
that that means that other people from outside of our in kind of our, our usual catchment area are going to see us and be attracted by us. So I think that some of the stuff that Go Ahead are doing, they were one of the, the UK's first large companies to have a 50 50 um, representation at board level. And um, and GTR, they have it as a key strategic objective to make diversity part of their DNA. So when we talk about making this happen, it has to start at the top. And so making it a key strategic objective is a starting point. And then obviously it has to filter its way through. So um, working with organisations like GTR, who are really serious about this stuff, and, and do not want to see a short list that isn't diverse. You know, we would be questioned on why if we put a short list forward of, of five white males, for example, well, we've not done our job well enough, you know. Um, there's a huge amount going on and, and lots of different clients are doing different things. So Network Rail, for example, are doing reverse mentoring. So we need allies, we need to educate, and there are people at a level within the industry who perhaps need some support with understanding what um, what the new world is going to look like. And we can't just expect people to understand, unfortunately, it's not part of everybody's DNA. So reverse mentoring, where a person who is much earlier on in their career who is different to the person that they are mentoring, spend time together on a regular basis talking about their view of the world. This is how it is for me. I think another big thing is that we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. There are some subject matters which people generally shy away from. Let's not talk about the fact that you're a different gender to me. Let's not talk about the fact that that you may be um, gay, that you may be of a, uh, a different race to me, a different religion to me. Well, actually, why not? Let's encourage people to bring their whole selves to work. And let's all get comfortable with it. It's not terribly British. It's going to take a while to happen. But the more people that, that do it, the quicker the pace will, will happen. Fantastic. Well, that's a wonderfully inspiring place to end. Um, just before we wrap up, I just need to ask, what 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 took you to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro? <laughs> um, I was raising money, Thomas, for an amazing charity in the Northwest um, on side youth zones, which provide... Um, somewhere to go, something to do and someone to talk to for young people. And um, we we raised over £20,000 to have a mentoring programme for our local youth zone so that children who are not as blessed as, as, as our children are um, and may not have um, the background or the resources to, to help them understand what the world could look like beyond the confines of, of their own home or their own experience. So there was a real kind of mission to raise some cash and um, and it just <laughs> felt like a good idea at the time. Um, it was an amazing experience, five years ago now, um, an amazing experience really was, um, which I think I surprised quite a few people when I got to the top. Um, but yeah it's it just shows you what a bit of belief and hard graft can get you fantastic thank you so much for joining me on the free reading podcast i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation too, thomas thank you for inviting me well that concludes the free wheeling podcast for this week 
Thank you to my guest, Nina Lockwood, and thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you get five minutes, do jump onto the podcast store and give us a rate and review. Thank you for listening and goodbye.